Welcome to After Hours, conversations for music educators, presented by Amro Music. This is where we share ideas and work towards solutions to better serve your students. This week, Nick Averwater talks with Ryan Richmond, Vice President at Eastman Music Company. They'll be talking about the history of the company as it approaches its 30th year, some of the latest products and innovations, and more. You can learn more about Eastman's various brands at eastmanmusiccompany.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to After Hours Conversations for Music Educators. Today, I have the privilege of sitting down with my good friend, Mr. Ryan Richmond, who is the vice president at Eastman Music Company. Ryan, it's good to see you today. Thanks, Nick. It's good to be here. So today we're just checking in with our manufacturing partners. I know you all have been working hard throughout this pandemic. You've been doing a lot of things that you're really excited about. And I want to spend a little bit of time talking about what's going on at Eastman. But before I do, I feel like I want to talk about the past a little bit. I mean, you guys are still a little bit the new kid on the block. And you still have your original founder of the company there working every day. And tell us a little bit about how Eastman started and how it got to where it is today. Absolutely. Yeah, we are um, the new kids on the block. We are the young uh, company out there. Uh, Next year, 2022, is our 30th birthday. 30th birthday. Yep. So we're not very old when you consider some of our competitors are approaching 200 years old. Um, it's, uh, it's interesting to see uh, how much we've been able to grow and, and really uh, make ourselves kind of part of this, this community. So Eastman started in 1992, like I said, 30 years ago, uh, with our founder, Chen Ni. Chen was a uh, foreign exchange student um, from Beijing, China, to Boston University to get a master's degree in flute performance. So he was a very accomplished flute player uh, and he was very fortunate to come and study in New England at Boston University. Um, he, uh, he worked a lot of odd jobs, like he worked at a gas station, he worked at a restaurant um, to work his way through college. And, and uh, you know, he had pretty humble beginnings to be honest. Um, my relationship with Chen is, is he's just a wonderful person and I love working with him, but he does not like the limelight. He doesn't like the stage at all. And I always joke with him. I'm like, well, you know, if, if that a performance degree is perfect, then if you don't want to, <laughs> you know, if you don't want to be in the spotlight, that's a, that's a wonderful thing to do. Um, so, you know, he was just kind of searching for, for what he was going to do with his life after, after just pursuing uh, the music degree for, for as long as he did. And, um, he kind of, he kind of, uh, happened upon, uh, the idea of importing stringed instruments, uh, into the United States. And he set up, um, a workshop method. You know, he, he's a very bright guy and he saw a real need in the music business for a workshop violin and workshop violins go back hundred years or more. Um, it's a, it's a method of making a, a violin, um, with several individuals in workshops. And, you know, in the middle of the 20th century, we got away from that method of making string instruments and the instruments became really dull, really boring sounding. Um, and, uh, Chen revived that workshop method in the nineties and a lot of other companies have followed suit since. 
Um, he grew the business out of the back of his car. I think Chen has been in every single string shop in the United States at some point. I mean, he just traveled the country, uh, starting in New England and then expanding out. And, and he just worked really, really hard um, to get feedback, to talk to players, to talk to luthiers, to talk to dealers, and to improve his product. Um, and that became a central theme to our company forever is product improvement, listening to our customers, listening to teachers, and making the best product that we're capable of making. Um, so after about, uh, well, after about 10 years or so, Chen started to work on guitars. And about 14 years after Eastman started, um, the Haynes Flute Company was for sale. And the owner had passed away kind of suddenly and and uh, and it was it was for sale. And Chen uh, saw this as a very wonderful opportunity to like keep the brand alive, to save this this historic brand that had meant a lot to him as a flutist, as a student in Boston. Um, you know, when he was a student, he actually bought a head joint from the Haynes Company uh, to help finish his degree. So it's it's kind of a wonderful story to come full circle uh, that you know he became the the steward of that of that brand and we've grown uh, the Haynes flute company since then since 2004 you know later we would add the se shires company uh, bakun musical services would join the fold uh, and just before the pandemic we added uh, the bourgeois guitar company to our family of brands in lewiston maine um, so we're always looking for opportunities to grow our company and to bring the best craftspeople to the family to make instruments and to, to help improve everything that we make. Um, so we've grown quite a bit over the last 30 years. Well, and, and you, you mentioned your ability to listen to the customer, and that's something that I've always respected so much of Eastman is um, when there's something that's not quite right um, – it's, it never seems like it's more than an email or a phone call. And it's like, yeah, I, th I think we can do something about that. And then the next generation comes out. And sure enough, y'all have done something about that. Um, and, and I think that's made you so responsive to the needs of the educator and to the market. One of the things I want to touch on is I have been so impressed the way you all have brought these unique um, brands into the Eastman family. You mentioned like Shires and Bakun. And I know one of the things that you all are trying to do is to find the best craftsmen possible in letting them work on those unique components to the instrument to make the best instrument possible. Can you give us some of the examples of how y'all are utilizing, say, the craftsmen at Shires or at Bakun across some of the other instruments that you're manufacturing that other people may not know were actually influenced by those those um, boutique-esque brands. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a new way of thinking, really, um, as far as, you know, utilizing very high-level craftspeople to design instruments for our company. Um, you know, as an example, uh, the general manager of our S.E. Shires company, his name is James. James is, has worked at S.E. Shires for, I think, 20 years. Um, and the S.E. Shires company is only 25 years old. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, he's been there for most of the history of that brand and he has been, you know, instrumental, no pun intended 
in making all of our brass instruments uh, uh, better because of his experience and, and the ability, uh, the abilities of our people in the Shires factory. Um, you know, making a, a wind instrument is a learning process. And, you know, back when I was a student, student instruments were essentially old versions of professional instruments. You know, there was the, there was a better way to do it. And so they, they, they did it better. But that old way or that old design or that old taper or that old scale, you know, that became the student model because we had the tooling and we could make them efficiently and all of those things. And so I, I like to, you know, I, when I'm talking to certain educators, I, 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 uh, I used to say that, uh, that instrument, like when we were young, student instruments were really well-made because they were durable. They lasted forever, but they were really poorly designed, you know, but they were just made impeccably well by wonderful craftspeople, but it was an old fashioned design. And today, our students today have really wonderfully engineered instruments because of computer technology and the ability to do CAD drawings. And, you know, the scales are really quite good, but then they're made really poorly. You know, the craftsmanship or the attention to detail is nothing like it was many years ago. And so, you know, I think the, the challenge that we have is to make really wonderfully engineered instruments utilizing people like James, like Avon at the Haynes Company, like Maury Bakun and uh, at the Bakun Company, and making them really well made all the way down the line, you know? And, and uh, you know, we listen to a lot of band directors. My wife is a junior high band director. I listen a lot to junior high band directors <laughs> <laughs> every day. <laughs> so, yeah, we, we, we have utilized those teams at these, uh, you know, boutique brands to really improve the, the parts, the scale, uh, the craftsmanship of every instrument we do, all the way from student, you know, to to heirloom type instruments. I mean, a Haynes flute. If you get a, a really uh, high level, all solid gold flute, it could run you over fifty thousand dollars. You know, how do we take some of that and put it into a student flute? Yeah. Well, the scale. You know, a Haynes scale. It, just because it's a student instrument, we can put the tone holes in the same place. You know, we can make a student flute have the same intonation as a, as a custom or professional flute. And the same is true on trumpets. The same is true on saxophones. The same is true on tubas. Um, you know, we can use high level designs like most companies do. But the problem is, is the execution. You have to build to a certain quality. Um, and that's what we've really tried to that's that's more of how the influence of those premium brands have 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 influenced Eastman is, you know, we're colleagues. So the Shires factory craftspeople actually work alongside the Eastman factory craftspeople and teach them, uh, you know, the tricks of the trade, so to speak. So it's a really it's a really wonderful relationship between all of the brands. Wow, that's fantastic. And 
You know, there's there's um, two products specifically that I want to ask you about. Of course, one just came out, and that's the new Sousaphone, and we saw it at Arkansas Bandmasters, and it got a lot of attention, and I want to talk about that. The other one, it just seems like everybody that touches it seems to love it, and that's the 534 tuba. And so let's talk a little bit about those two. What is it about that 534 tuba that makes it so attractive to educators? Well, I have to give credit where credit is due. And the credit goes to our low brass product manager, Chuck Kerrigan. Um, you know, Chuck has, is a veteran of the music industry. He uh, worked at a, a local music store in the Phoenix area for, I think, 14 years before joining us at Eastman. And even before he was working for us or with us, he was my counselor on tuba. So when I was the product manager and I was working on this tuba project, you know, eight or so years ago, I listened to Chuck a lot. Uh, Chuck, he's a fine tuba player, and he just knew what worked for kids. You know, he knew what worked for students, and he knew what worked for adults. Um, you know, we've seen our competitors get into the classroom by making affordable tubas. Like, that's kind of been the pathway for a lot of instrument manufacturers is first they develop the big instruments, and then they start developing the smaller ones. And the thing that I noticed about some of those competitors is when they make these big instruments, these big tubas, affordable. They make them affordable, which is great, but then no professionals play on them. You know, nobody of a high level will pick that instrument and really, really perform on it. Um, and I can tell you that uh, the principal tubist of the Phoenix Symphony plays on a 534 tuba for his job. So even though we're selling this tuba to schools, it's, it's actually good enough, it's well enough designed, it performs at a high level that a professional musician can utilize it in their career. And the secret is in the design. You know, uh, tuba design throughout the years has really been about building upon things that have come before. You know, most modern tubas are iterations of instruments that have existed for a long time. And it's like, well, we're going to try this bell from this type of instrument. We're going to try this valve section from this type of instrument. We're going to try a tall bugle or a wide bugle, or we're going to do this taper. And so there's a lot of tubas in the world. There's a lot of tubas that don't really play that well either. Um, so it's just a matter of having the right person who understands what plays well and what will be efficient. And, uh, you know, and that's why the 534 is the success that it is, is because I had a great counselor who understood what a student and a professional tubist needs. And, and we created that, um, you know, it comes from a really, really old instrument design from the York company, which is no longer with us. Uh, and it's been made by a few different manufacturers. You know, and every version is slightly different. Um, and one of the things we did to it that was really kind of interesting was tuba players like to tune the slides as they play. And if they can't pull the slide and, and adjust it, just like a trumpet player would or whatnot, then, then you know, it's, they would rather have that than not. And this particular design only allowed you to get to one and three, basically. Four was very difficult to get to. So we added a, two, uh, a fourth valve tuning slide pole on the backside where we wrapped it a certain way so a player could actually adjust the fourth valve on, on the, during play. Um, so yeah, it's, it comes down to design and, and, and execution again. Um, 
So, and then the sousaphone. Yeah, let's talk uh, about that. Yeah. The sousaphone, I've also got to give credit to Chuck. Um, you know, as a tuba player himself, he knew what people would want in a sousaphone. And we also counseled with our artists. So we have a few tuba artists that uh, performed in military bands throughout their career. And, you know, when you're in a military band as a tubist, you carry a sousaphone a lot. And I remember speaking with them in the development stage of, we want to make a better sousaphone. There was one overwhelming point that every professional tubist or sousaphone player made that, that used these in a military ensemble. And that was that they're too darn heavy. <laughs> Everything about them is too darn heavy. So we went to work to try to make something that was lighter without sacrificing some of the sturdiness that you need in an instrument like this. Uh, and it's accomplished in a couple ways. You know, one of the ways is we put bracing where it really matters. So we put bracing around the neck and around the neck receiver. Uh, we put um, extra material around where it goes on your shoulder. So it spreads out some of the weight. So even though it, it is still a heavy instrument, it kind of spreads the, the footprint, so to speak. Um, we made the bell an inch smaller in diameter. Uh, which helps focus the sound actually, which is a good thing. Um, and then we address the bore of the instrument. The bore on our instrument is actually a 689 bore, which is smaller than what is currently being made. But if you go back 50 or 60 years, you'll see that that was very common in sousaphones. Um, you know, so again, it's kind of learning from past to create something that's efficient and relevant for today and, and beyond. Um, and everyone that plays the sousaphone has just been amazed. I mean, I just finished the, the TBA conference down in Texas and you mentioned you had it in Arkansas. I, there wasn't one person that played that sousaphone that had a negative comment. Uh, most of it was, wow, this is the best sousaphone I've ever played. How did you get it so light? How did, how did you make it play so well? So really wonderful projects that, um, kind of learn from the past. We take what every, everything is kind of common. Everyone's got a bigger bore, every, you know, bigger, and it really is hard to play and it's not very efficient and it doesn't sound any bigger either. So. Well, two great instruments. And again, just the, the success of that 534 has been really impressive because it, it seems like every educator that's touched it, at least in our area, has been really impressed and with the you know the four piston valves but on the front it seems to be in a very compact design it seems very comfortable in the hands of even a middle schooler but and then you see the bell and the flare on it and it's just this rich sounding instrument you can put it in the high school band and so yep. it just very much seems like an instrument that perfectly moves between the various age levels and, and is designed in such a way to allow the student to grow with the instrument, even up to the symphony level, as you pointed out. There are some professionals playing on that. So two great examples. Now, Ryan, is there anything that y'all are working on right now that you're really excited about you want to talk about? Oh, goodness. We've got many projects. Uh, <laughs> we... Uh we're always trying to expand our catalog and fill in gaps that we, we don't currently service. Um, you know, there are so many things that, you know, we as a young company don't make that we're working on and there are various stages of development. You know, we're working on uh, making more piccolos. 
you know, we're working on uh, increasing our clarinet footprint with a bass clarinet. You know, we're working on expanding our saxophone line. And me as a saxophone player, that's kind of exciting for me because uh, I really enjoy uh, being involved with the development of our saxophones because uh, I get to test them. That, that's, that's a real joy that I didn't get to do on the tuba. Um, you know, there's just so many uh, out there. I think, you know, one of my favorites, if I had to pick a favorite right now, it's our baritone saxophone development. Um, you know, we've been very successful with our 52nd Street instruments, and and we've just released, um, you know, just before the pandemic, probably not the greatest of time to release a new instrument um, just before the world completely shuts down, but we released an instrument we call the Rue St. George saxophone. And it's kind of like the complete opposite of the 52nd Street. You know, the 52nd Street has a big bell and it's really, really brilliant sounding. And, it, and it's supposed to emulate an old vintage American saxophone. But what we wanted to do next is have a saxophone that kind of reminded us, reminded us of a vintage French saxophone. Uh, hence the name Rue St. George. So still a street name, different continent. And, you know... With those two voices in the alto and tenor, now we started working on the baritone. And I, I'm a baritone saxophonist. I played a lot of baritone um, in my life uh, through college and playing in a lot of musical theater orchestras. Uh, I was always book five because I played bassoon. So I always had the bass clarinet and the baritone saxophone and the bassoon, that was my book. Um, so developing this new berry has just been really, really exciting. And um, the finished product is beyond my expectations. Uh, it just, it plays so well. It feels so comfortable. It has everything that I would want as a baritone saxophonist. And we're doing something a little crazy too uh, next year. Uh, we are working on a student baritone saxophone that only goes down to B flat instead of low A. Um, because I don't know in the literature of any middle school band piece that calls for a low A. And it's more weight, it's more to fix, it's just more horn than the average 12-year-old student needs. And as I looked at the market, nobody does this. Not a single other manufacturer really makes this kind of an instrument. And I, you know, obviously I discussed with my main counselor, uh, who is my wife as a junior high band director, you know, would you buy this? Would you use this? Is this something that would interest you? Um, and she overwhelmingly thought that it would be a great idea because, you know, you don't need that much, that much, that metal at the end of the, uh, the end of the saxophone. So we're looking at even like bucking the trend and saying, no, there's a purpose for an instrument like this. A director can save money, buy an instrument that they that will fulfill their needs, perform at a very high level, and doesn't have more than they need. Um, great, example. kind of a different way of thinking. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we can't like we can't wait to see, and I suspect if it's uh, anything like the previous instruments that comes out, it'll be very well thought out and uh, well received here by the education and music community. So, Ryan, are there any, uh, any other resources or things that you just want to share with our education community that's going on within Eastman right now? Sure. You know, we worked really hard on our online presence. 
Um, our websites have more information now than they've ever had before. We try to make them very easy to navigate um, so that information can be readily uh, gotten uh, on all of our products. You know, you can go to eastmanwinds.com. You can go to eastmanstrings.com. Uh, there you can find all kinds of information on our products and the other companies like uh, William S. Haynes, uh, S.E. Shires, and Bakun Musical Services. So we've really worked to put a lot of resources easily available. So, uh, you know, directors can do shopping. Uh, they, can, they can go find us on, on various social media platforms to ask questions. Um, and we are always interested in speaking directly to teachers. So they can, they can be connected to any of our sales representatives or our product managers through, you know, their favorite dealer, Amro Music. Perfect. Well, Ryan, I have just enjoyed so much watching the success that you all have experienced over the last uh, going on 30 years now and have no doubt that under your leadership and Saul and Chen and the wonderful people at Eastman that y'all have a very bright future ahead and, and we very much value our partnership with Eastman. Thank you so much. It's the same on this side too. That's Ryan Richmond, Vice President of Eastman Music Company, talking with Nick Averwater. After Hours Conversations for Music Educators is presented by Amro Music. This podcast is produced by Nick Averwater, Emily McGee, and Joel Hurd in Memphis, Tennessee. You can hear more conversations at amromusic.com slash afterhours. Hey, if you enjoyed today's episode, here are two easy and fast ways you can support the After Hours show. First, your five-star review means a lot as it helps to boost us in the podcast rankings so that other music educators just like you can find us. Second, if you thought of someone that would enjoy this week's content and episode, hey, please share it with them so that they too can be a part of the After Hours community. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next week.